0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jane Richards, and today I have the great pleasure of welcoming back two previous guests. Today we have Professor Beverly Clough, who is a Professor of Law and Social Justice at Manchester Law School, and Professor Jonathan Herring, and he's the D.M. Wolfe-Clarendon Fellow in Law at Exeter College at the University of Oxford. I've invited them on the show today to speak about their latest collection, which is Disability Care and Family Law, and that was published by Routledge in 2021. Bev and Jonathan, welcome to the show. Hi, hi Jen. Hi, it's great to have you both back. So just to get us started, can you both tell me a little bit about yourselves and how you came to write Disability Care and Family Law? Yep. Um,
2: yeah, so my, my research tends to span um, health law and social care law, um, and particularly focusing through feminist and disability uh, studies lenses. Um, and really, I've been particularly interested in decision-making frameworks, including mental capacity law. Um, I don't know if Jonathan wants to talk a little bit about himself and then maybe talk about the book.
0: Okay. Hi. So I I work in all sorts of areas, uh, family law, medical law and ethics, also a bit of criminal law, um, but also spent quite some time looking at uh, caring uh, and how the law values or fails to value care and how the law could be much more supportive of care. Um, So I was really excited, uh, always excited to work with Bev's because she's such a uh, a brilliant uh, colleague to work with. Um, So it was really exciting to work with her on this project.
1: And then how did this project come together?
2: So we'd we'd worked together um, on another collection from the series on ageing, gender and family law. Um, And I think we were at another event and we kind of mentioned that we really wanted to engage more fully with disability. Um, Disability, it seemed to come up quite a lot in the chapters in the Ageing, Gender and Family Law book, Um, and it was kind of there as like an underpinning theme, Um, and it's certainly in the other books in the collection that Jonathan had been involved in, disability was often kind of cropping up. Um, So I think, yeah, there was this sense that we wanted to to really foreground disability um, and recognition that it deserved a more thorough engagement and kind of focus within its own right in the context of of family law.
1: Yeah, that's super interesting because you do open the book by writing Disability Rarely Features in Family Law. So I'm wondering why you think this is. Um, What does your book add in this space?
0: so i think in a, in a way it's it's not surprising because disability features so little in in any area oh, of that's law. True. um it always seems to be a sort of afterthought um and disabled people are often treated as just invisible and not mm-hmm. seen um so if you just look at covers of family law books or whenever there are stories in newspapers about family you normally have a a, a nice picture of some family there's more diversity are uh, often nowadays than once there was but but rarely is disability there featured the idea that somebody might be a, a disabled parent uh just uh is uh, is invisible in in the public discourse
2: yeah um, and I think as well like disability tends to crop up in in family law and in other areas of law it's often seen as like a complicating factor it's like an additional factor to consider at the end are a problem. Um, and the kind of, I think we talk in the introduction about disabled people playing fleeting roles, but they're never the central subject. Um, and I think what we're wanting to do with, with thinking through this is think place disability central to it and then think about what that does to our understandings of, of many of the kind of central ideas and concepts and values in family law as well. Um, rather than it just being an afterthought.
1: Yeah, I think that's one of the things that came through for me in the book, I, the idea that if it if disability does feature in family law, it's obviously where an individual is an object of care within the family mm-hmm. rather than, um, you know, sort of being integral or an equal part or just recognised as being in the family.
2: Yeah, I think there was a, another thing that, that struck me in, in kind of thinking about this absence. Um, I think some of it is just the kind of historical and, material reality of kind of de- deinstitutionalization really from the late 1980s and I think it was only once you know a lot of disabled people are no longer um, residing in, in certain types of institution then these kind of family law issues have started to have to be um, recognized and grappled with and I think we're, we're seeing these are becoming more and more complex as our understanding um a, particularly through disability legal scholarship is developing, I think we're, we're really starting to grapple with these. And I think it's a kind of really important moment actually um, to start to think about this this more carefully and, um, you know, centralised disability uh, rather than just trying to struggle to deal with it as a kind of side issue or an afterthought.
1: Yeah, I like that idea of centralising disability in all of um, the scholarship and law and doctrines. So then when writing this book and bringing it together, did you find there to be any sort of conflict or tensions between these areas of law?
0: So I think certainly one is that where where you do see disability arising in family law is nearly always in the area of child protection proceedings. Um, but it seems if you've got a disabled parent, the first thought is, oh, my goodness, maybe they're not able to look after the child properly. Or uh, if there's a disabled child, oh, dear, the uh, the parents might not be able to meet their needs. Mm. Uh, and as, as soon as uh, the word disability is raised, that just seems to raise red flags in people's uh, eyes. Uh, and I hope one of the uh, uh, achievements of the collection is, is, is that someone might be a disabled parent, but who cares they can be just as good a parent of course as as anyone else indeed they might be bringing all sorts of skills and insights uh, that uh abled uh in inverted commas parents um, um don't have
1: yeah there does seem to be this consistent narrative that comes through from disability scholarship where people with disabilities um and you know your book looks at this parents with disabilities are required to face additional hurdles and overcome sort of barriers um, and test for legal capacity to sort of exercise the same rights as all other people. Um, And I think that's, you know, something that's interesting that comes also from the CRPD or the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. So perhaps you could, and this is, you know, the CRPD does come, is mentioned several times in the book, so perhaps you can contextualise the book somewhat by reference to the CRPD.
2: Yeah, so I think... I mean, the CRPD has been so important, I think in spearheading and just getting us to think a little bit differently about this relationship between law and disability, um, particularly the social model of disability, which is absolutely kind of central and underpinning the CRPD. And I think as part of that, it's really forcing Legal scholars, as well as and um, scholars in other disciplines, to think about the the kind of role of society and structures and um, legal frameworks in um kind of shaping and creating disability. So it's it's really shifting away from this internalized individual model of disability that's been driven by um kind of medicalization, and instead really you know. <laughs> openly inviting us to think well what are the kind of structural issues here what are the societal issues and that's really important for law as part of those social structures um, and I think it's it's really has kind of been a catalyst for a lot of really important work not just in family law um, but in medical law social care law and I think really with the book as well as inviting this more kind of careful engagement with disability and family law it would be really beneficial to then think about other areas of law that have have been kind of less uh, focused on disability but where ideas of disability um, need to be brought to the forefront as well so you know contract law is a really you know interesting space which could um, I think benefit from this more critical engagement with disability too.
1: So then what do you hope to achieve with the book what are the aims of it?
0: So I think w- w- one thing certainly is is to challenge some of the uh, uh, assumptions about what family law is about. Yeah. <laughs> um, and certainly for 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 many centuries, marriage has been the the core theme of family law, and most family law textbooks will open with uh, a chapter about marriage. Um, but uh, I think that's increasingly coming under uh, attack by by many family law scholars, including b- both Bev and I, uh, who, who are questioning whether. Actually, family life is—is is it marriage that's key, or is it actually themes like care uh, and intimacy that should be seen as really what make family law, rather than the traditional status uh, of, um, uh, mar- uh, of of marriage? So, so I hope there's, there's 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 questions about using disability to actually open up new ways of understanding family law, which are for for the the, the benefit um, of everyone. Um, and I think also challenging some of those traditional categories that family law depends on as well, like parent and child. Um, so we've always assumed that the parent uh, is the one who is caring for the child, um, but uh, as we see in this book, there, there there are plenty of instances where actually it's the child caring for the parent. Uh, and, and this presentation of children as sort of passive objects of care rather than themselves, active carers, uh, is, I hope, another theme that comes through the book.
1: Yeah, it certainly does. And I know that's the you wrote a chapter specifically on this. I want to talk about that. But just sort of going back to a point you mentioned just a moment ago, Jonathan, um, the first section is about care relations in policy context. Um And, you know, this is one of the key themes I think that does come through the book, this idea of care um, and how it sort of runs throughout family law, I guess you could say, Um, and there are these narratives surrounding disability and care as well. So what. My question is, Is can you provide a context to frame the chapters and how policy, talk about a little bit how policy in relation to care is perhaps relevant to both family law and disability law?
2: Yes, yeah, so I think there's, there's this kind of symbiotic relationship, isn't there, between law and policy where we've got these kind of normative values that underpin um, policy and then they kind of seeping in and circulating through the legal frameworks and the judgments and the statutes, um, and I think the Chapters in this first part really speak quite strongly to that. Um, There's my chapter where I I talk about this kind of disjunct between care and disability and this kind of theoretical antagonism that there's been Um, Chrissy Rogers talking about the kind of policies underpinning care and mothering um, beyond the prison wall. We've got um, Jonathan's chapter on children who care Um, and also Kirsten Rummery's chapter, um, which really is very much focused on the impact of welfare policies and how that is kind of placing pressure um, on family life and how family is structured as part of policy. And I think these tie really nicely together because we can see a lot of what um, Rummery is talking about in these welfare policies, kind of underpinning the legal frameworks as well and being reinforced through judgments or through um, the kind of statutes or, you know, the legal reasoning that we see deployed there.
0: And the the big policy issue, of course, which is underpinning this, is if uh, some parents give birth to a disabled child, who has the primary responsibility to care for that child? So, do we say, well, it's uh, for the parents to care for the child? The state might step in if they're not able to uh, to care, but the the uh, otherwise, the primary responsibility is with the parents. Or, or do we say, well, the primary responsibility will be with the state? Uh, they may well decide the parents should. Uh, carry out the day-to-day role, but the state has the obligation to support and enable parents to carry that out. Mm, I
2: that, think that responsibility. That yeah, I think that responsibility point is is really interesting, and just you know when you were speaking, then it seems to be underpinning so much of of the book actually, in so many of the chapters. It's about kind of who is responsible. Um, in the, in the disability context. And I think that's why the social model and the CRPD is quite so powerful because it is recognising that it isn't this kind of internal privatised responsibility for disability. It's a societal um, kind of structural issue. And I think that's quite a nice, productive way of, of thinking about these chapters, actually.
1: Yeah, that does come through, actually, in several of the chapters. So your chapter, Jonathan, on um, children and care, that, you know, um, and also yours, Bev, this idea that, you know, when there is disability, whether it's a parent, a child, there is a different role for the state. So mm-hmm. the parent, for example, if they do have a disability, they may no longer be deemed to be responsible for the child or, you know, the state has different obligations depending on, you know, who has a disability, the extent of a disability, and there is often... Or I perhaps I shouldn't say often but there can be a failure of the state to offer support um, when it's sort of needed or necessary um, and this is a failure of state as opposed to you know failure of the individual and I think this is a really important lesson that we have from the social model of disability. I want to drill down into the chapters in this first sections to start with. Um, So Bev, your chapter, Disability and Care, Theoretical Antagonisms Revisited. So can you tell me other antagonisms with regards to disability and care? Can you talk me through some of these?
2: Yeah, so I think um, kind of historically, and I know when I first started doing research through a kind of ethic of care lens, during my PhD, and I was trying to align this with disability studies. Um, and it was, it, as a kind of newcomer to the field, it really struck me that there was this um, antagonism, this theoretical conceptual antagonism um, between care theorists and disability theorists. Um, so, in the chapter, I've I tried to kind of dig down around where, why that has happened um, and, you know, recognising the important contributions that both um, camps really are making here and trying to draw out the, the ways that the this kind of strength in bringing them together because there tends to be a kind of common enemy um, um, with both camps. Um, and I think there's a lot to be gained from bringing them into conversation. Um, so I talk a little bit in the chapter about really some of the material Um, circumstances that have kind of led to this. And it was driven a lot by this kind of the institutionalization context actually, and the the concern from, um, you know, families that this responsibility again, actually would be placed on them and it would privatize that responsibility within the family and place burdens on often women. Um, And again, we see this in Kirsteen's chapter as well with these gender dimensions of care. And I think there was this real fear about the burdens of caring, and it was often framed as the burdens of caring would be privatised within the family. Um, And that was then kind of counterposed to the disability rights movement and this focus on independent living and um, moving out of institutions and the shift to community care. And I think that really set up this this kind of um, antagonism of you know we don't want care we want independent living we want our own rights it's not about being a burden it's not about um this kind of paternalistic framing of being cared for but that was then positioned against um you know the the carers movement which was really pushing for recognition as carers and not just to have um you know the burdens of caring and the responsibility pushed onto them so I think both it, both camps in that argument had really valid positions, but I think they they almost became positioned against each other, whereas I think the enemy really... Um, was about this lack of resources, that kind of the lack of the state responsibility um, being being foregrounded, and um, but it really struck me Jenny Morris's um, work. Jenny Morris is a really prominent disability rights advocate, um, and she was heavily critical of care as a framing in the disability context, um, and she said that you cannot have um, empowerment with care, and I think that's that really kind of has set this this tone, um, and it does. Does pose a really important challenge, actually, to how we understand care, um, and what what kind of understanding of care is is underpinning that as well. And um, so, it's a really really important conversation, I think, and really important points from from the various positions here. Um, so, I think in the chapter, I don't want to detract from the messages that were that were coming through from people involved. Um, but we I wanted to really try and drill down and see where it was coming from, whether these can be resolved. Um and I, you know, I talk in the chapter a little bit about um really moving beyond that dyadic framing of, of the argument, because I, as I've said a couple of times, I think there is something important and a kind of common strand that's underpinning both of these these camps, if you want to put it like that.
1: I guess then I want to um, ask you a little bit more about that. How do we move this beyond this um structure? Yeah, so I, I mean, I think when I talked
2: about the, the kind of lack of state obligations and state responsibility here, um, really what we're seeing is the state framed through this liberal model of the state Um, and I think you know what really seems to be underpinning both the the care literature and disability studies is a rejection of that model of the state and both are calling on the state to provide resources and to provide support Um, and that really requires a shift in how we view individual, how we view the role of the state, um, and a recognition of relationality, a recognition of interdependence, a recognition of the social context, and I think the social model of disability underpinning this is is really quite vital, especially if we think about the the CRPD as a potential vehicle for for moving this forward. Um, But I think both in, in kind of moving beyond this dyad, it requires this challenging of that liberal framing of of the law, of subjectivity, um, of the legal subject, of the responsibilities of the state. Um, And I think through that, there is is scope um, to kind of move that conversation forward and to build build those alliances in thinking through um, the legal frameworks here.
1: Yeah, I think that's really important that does come through, this idea of building alliances in order to move forward. I think that's a really important takeaway from the book. So let's turn then next to the next chapter which you've just um, you've alluded to by Chrissy Rogers. It's titled Mothering Disability and Care Beyond the Prison Wall. So Chrissy Rogers writes about mothering a disabled adult child who is in prison. So what are the caring implications for mothers who children, whose children are incarcerated and, for example, have autism spectrum condition, attention deficit, um, disorders, mental health, illnesses, or learning difficulties or disabilities? Can you talk about
0: this chapter a bit more? This, this, this is a wonderful chapter, and I always love Chrissy's writing because she she's one of those rare academics, I think, who speaks to the heart as well as to the mind, because she really manages to capture the sort of humanness of the situations she's describing. Um, and I think she very powerfully brings out this distinction between careful places uh, or spaces and careless spaces. And as she said, normally a parent with uh, a child uh, who's disabled will be experiencing careful places. There'll be medics or uh, experts in education trying to be caring and helpful towards the child. But if the child, in in this scenario, an adult child has committed a crime, uh, suddenly that caring environment goes. Suddenly in the legal system, uh, the parent is experiencing something entirely different. Um, and there's those challenges, as she describes with the accounts and the different parents sort of a mixture of feeling of guilt that perhaps they've mm-hmm. somehow done something wrong in the way they raise the child or that they're somehow responsible for their child committing their crime with still uh, great love for the child, but also perhaps uh, distress at what they've what they've done. Um, and so she she really well, I think, captures those those tensions for other uh, mothers in the, the particular uh, scenario she's discussing
1: yeah it was a really it was a fascinating chapter i'm I'm wondering if you can reflect on something else she writes about which was maternal resilience in this space
0: yeah and i think that that was particularly powerful when she Mm. was talking about cases where the mothers had themselves been uh the victims of crime by their uh normally sons um where um, they still, despite having been perhaps the victim of a serious assault, as a mother still cared for their child. Uh, and that uh, that resilience, uh, even in the face of that, I show, think shows the power of uh, maternal uh, maternal mm-hmm. love, but but always in a very conflicted way, not in any yeah. kind of sort of rosy. Uh, rose-tinted spectacled way there was no pretense that it hadn't happened or anything uh, but but seeking to uh, balance those powerful emotions the mothers were describing
1: Mm. yeah it was fascinating to read about so Jonathan I want to turn to your chapter now about children care so you write that children who undertake care work for family members are often presented as a vulnerable group who are prone to serious disadvantage It is said that child carers are required to grow up too soon and are denied the joys of the idealised innocence of childhood. Legal and social work interventions are typically designed to relieve the child of as much of their caring burden as possible. So in your analysis, and perhaps it's a bit controversial, um, but you do challenge these assumptions. So you write that these worries and standard responses are misguided. And, you know, it was really interesting to read in your chapter, you know, you do include headlines from you know newspapers and that sort of thing where there is this sort of reoccurring trope of you know children um as being disadvantaged um as being missing out on their childhood um by having to care for a disabled parent so can you tell me about this
0: yeah so so you're right it's normally seen as an absolute mm. disaster for a child mm. to have to be involved in in, in their parents' care Um, But one of the things I wanted to bring out in my chapter is actually the voice of the children themselves who were caring, who were enormously proud of their role. They found it enormously rewarding. Um, Now, many of them then went on to say they needed some more help and support, um, but they certainly didn't see their caring role as some uh, horrific burden that was depriving them. They saw it as enormously rewarding, something they very much wanted to do and learned a lot from. Um, uh, and so, I, I think I wanted to change the uh, discussions away from the, seeing it as a burden, from it, from it really, when we seeing it as a blessing, if you like, and and and, and how we can um, make sure children get as, as much from it as they can, as they can. Um, and indeed, I also wanted to, to broaden out uh, to, to a broader point that actually all children, whether disabled mm-hmm. or not, and whether the parents are disabled or not, are involved in caring for yeah. their parents. Um, certainly i i know my children are constantly helping me in practical and emotional ways and giving me all sorts of love and care and i'm i'm sure uh it, they care for me as much as i i care for them in in very practical ways and i'm sure that's true in many families um so i think this this idea that that, that the 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 parent child relationship is all sort of one way and it's all the parent looking after the child uh, is, is most manifestly untrue in cases mm. with uh, disabled parents, but actually it's true for any parent-child mm. relationship.
1: Yeah, I love that. Actually, your chapter made me reflect on my own parenting as well, and I, it did give me pause for thought, actually, who is the sort of responsible <laughs> one and who is doing the most learning in this relationship? <laughs> um, and then you, you gave these great analogies in terms of the children who are... As you know, um, you know there's sort of these these ideas that you know they're missing out on being at the playground, but actually, are they just missing out on you know watching more YouTube videos or playing Xbox? Xbox. So you know what what are we yeah what are we actually comparing these sorts of things with? Um, and you you've talked about policy before, but I want to talk about now how the Children and Families Act of 2014 and the Care Act. What do they do in this space?
0: Yeah, so so certainly now any child carer who's identified by the local authority must be uh, assessed by the local authority and have their care needs assessed and the local authority have to decide what what services uh, uh, the child needs, although there's no legal obligation to actually provide those services. The only legal duty is to assess the child. Um, But I I refer to a study that found that 94% of children uh, were even following an assessment not given uh, any uh, mm-hmm. additional support by the local authority. Um, now it's not clear what why that is whether it is simply the child is actually perfectly fine caring for the parent they don't they don't need any help they're they're uh perfectly happy or, or perhaps they don't want any uh help or intervention from the local authority um but again i think that that suggests the idea that uh this caring responsibility children have is is some terrible burden uh really doesn't seem to be uh, uh to be accurate
1: yeah and i think that's it almost relates to a point you made earlier before, Bev, about you know these ideas of caring and being focused on the individual and it being the responsibility of individuals within a family as opposed to being a broader structural responsibility of society. So I think that's interesting also, Jonathan, it comes through in your chapter as well. Um, so you do break down the ways that harms facing child carers are presented and draw, draw out the sort of issues with these, and you've talked about these just now. Um, Some of the categories you have broken broadly down into those of agency, parenting, welfare, disabilism, care and social factors. Can you tell me about some of the problems in these spaces in terms of the way children as carers are presented and, you know, how do you challenge the dominant narrative?
0: Yes, yeah, so I think what what we're seeing here is just some norms on what it is to be a successful adult or a successful mm-hmm. child, and these themes of being uh, sort of uh, autonomy, being hugely yeah. privileged, that having sort of freedom to do what you want uh, is uh, the most valuable thing that you might uh, uh, might have, and being sort of independent and self sufficient is is really good, mm-hmm. uh, and and I just don't think that's. Uh, that's true. That <laughs> um, in fact, the things that make our lives really valuable are our, respons- our caring responsibilities, are uh, our, our, our in- interacting through relationships. That's what gives our lives value. And that's just as true for children uh, as it is for adults. So we should be sort of rejoicing in our uh, responsibilities and our caring roles rather than seeing them as uh, inhibitors of autonomy and things to be avoided.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really important point that comes through in the book as well. Um, So the next chapter is on ageing, disability and family life, and it's by Kirsten Rummery. So Kirsten writes about the impact of welfare policy on ageing, disability and family life. In particular, there's concern expressed with the public-private divide and the gendered division of care, and Bev, you mentioned this earlier. I'm wondering if you can explain this a little bit. Yeah, so really,
2: with the the kind of public-private divide, um, it's been a kind of long-standing um, source of um, feminist legal critique. Um, And I think you can also see it in a lot of work on um, social policy and social welfare. Um, But it really is about the way that um, particularly the domestic space and the family is aligned to that, and becomes this kind of privatised space where the state tends not to want to intervene or it does it kind of can subtly intervene um in often invisible ways but um in terms of the way the kind of framework works it's it's the private space it's there for the home it's the domestic space it's a family the state really is just the kind of creature of the public realm um, and it shouldn't transgress it shouldn't step into those boundaries of the home and um, so some really interesting um alignments, I think, with Chrissy Rogers' chapter here because there's that very kind of material boundary of the domestic space and the prison walls. Um, so it's it's quite nice to think about these chapters together, I think. Um, so yeah, with um Kirsty Mummery's chapter, it's a really kind of rich um overview and it's a really helpful um framing chapter, I think, for seeing the different ways that this public-private divide has been um, shored up through policy, particularly in the last kind of 20 years, um, and the gendered effects of this, particularly in terms of the division of care. And so it's quite a, um, I see it as like a quite a broad overview, and it gives a really interesting and really clear Um, overview of the different ways that this happens. So she, one of the really, for me, quite fascinating um, parts of this chapter talks about the the kind of normative assumptions that are driving social policy, that are driving this family space um, that's being carved out through policy, um, and then how this, through austerity, has these really important gender defects. Um, And often these are cumulative. So she talks about often um you have this when people have children these gender divisions start to appear through the the different ways that maternity and paternity and parental leave policies have been framed people are then taken out of workplaces often because of the um inflexible ways that people can return to work they can be pushed into part-time work, and then it becomes that an elderly parent becomes unwell, and they are they, often the women are then the best positioned to to take up the care for um elderly relatives, um and this gendered division is seen as um the kind of common sense. This is the the norm. This is the way it should happen. But what Kirsten Rummery has drawn attention to here is how this has been engineered through. Um, social policy, um, and through you know the way that employment policy works, so it isn't this kind of natural fact that it is um, women who should be undertaking these caring roles, but it's it's the way that this norm, um, these kind of gender divisions and these norms around family, have are buttressed by um, the state. So rather than it being a lack of state intervention, actually it's quite. Um, clear through this chapter that it is it's kind of it's very much engineered through policy that that is the way that the family is shaped so I think it's quite an interesting um, example through this chapter of how we can challenge this public-private divide and challenge this idea that the state aren't interfering interfering in the family space and they play they play really important role in shaping the family um, and the kind of gender divisions in the family too
1: yeah and I think those then the i you know the the significance of policy really does come through and how it mm-hmm. it just reinforces these sort of gender norms um within the family about disability and which are you know really powerful um, so perhaps this is a good point to continue talking about policy so the second part of the book is disabled children interacting with institutional legal settings and the next author writes about children's understandings of disability so can you tell me then, how do children conceive of disability, and what's the role of legislation in this space?
0: yeah, this is a this is a fascinating chapter by Sean jones, who's who's been doing some wonderful work on looking at how uh, children conceive of disability. Um, and what one thing she draws out is their sort of changing nature. Uh, that she says normally by age four, children have some sort of understanding of children having perhaps a different kind of body uh, mm-hmm. to, uh, to other children, uh, but perhaps not really understanding intellectual disability, um, but that that might gradually develop as the child develops. And indeed, their understanding of the impact of disability and how there are differences in disabilities develop. Um, But I think in a way, what's um, particularly interesting about her chapter is the way she she brings out how children are so affected by the attitudes of adults around them. Um, So although you sometimes might hear of children finding people with disabilities scary or uh, unsettling. Uh, in fact, she suggests that's uh, essentially a product of the attitudes of the adults around them. Uh, and that, in fact, if children are presented with a very sort of positive response towards disability, then they won't have any of those uh, negative feelings.
1: Yeah, it's, um, this theme again comes up, you know, the significance of parenting and the relationship of the child and the parent. I'm, I think it's, it's really interesting to reflect on that. So then the next chapter by Camilla Parker is titled Deprivation of Liberty, Parental Consent and the Rights of the Child. Um, and so Camilla writes that there's an obvious and significant difference in law with regards to care and treatment of children um, with and the decision-making role of parents. So she examines a series of cases, um, including RED, um, a child. So can you tell us about how the law has developed in this area? And how also do the wishes of children and parents and the advice um, and recommendations of medical practitioners intersect in this space? What can we learn from these cases? Yeah, so
2: this it's a very live um, and very modern mm. area of law, and I'm you know I'm not sure. Um when Camilla wrote this, that we could have foreseen how important this area of law will become. Um, and, you know, just as a kind of side note, the Newfield Foundation have been doing some really wonderful work on this. So if anyone does want to do a little bit more reading, of course, um, Camilla's chapter is excellent um, and, you know, gives a really... Nuanced assessment of the law and kind of outlining of the law, but there's some excellent resources um, on the Nuffield Foundation website too to see how things have developed since uh, Camilla's chapter. And I know Camilla's been involved with some of the Nuffield Foundation work too. so, yeah, these cases, they're really um, essentially it's about the scope of parental decision making and whether or not parents should be able to consent um, to deprivations of liberty on behalf of their children. Um, so we have in the kind of medical law context, uh, a kind of body of, of case law that that talks about the, the scope um, and the boundaries of parental decision making um, and whether, you know, parents should be able to, refuse or consent to treatment when their child is either refusing or consenting. This is a slightly different issue, and this is really about the kind of care arrangements and the deprivation, whether or not children are being deprived of their liberty in certain settings. Um, so this really came to the head in the RED case, which was focused on a 16-year-old. So this came to the Supreme Court, and Lady Hale's judgment is really worth reads um and what she talks about in this in this judgment um is that the definition of a deprivation of liberty is the same for children as it is for adults um and i think that's a really it's unsettling um for the kind of a lot of the the legal frameworks and the way that people tend to think about children and and care for children um and i think it can be quite um startling and stark to be faced with that reality that if it's a deprivation of liberty for an adult it's also a deprivation of liberty for a child um, and she does that by draw, drawing on um, her Cheshire West judgment which is a, a kind of big mental capacity case around deprivation of liberty and importantly she she talks about how parents cannot provide consent on behalf of the minor there has to be a process. There has to be a legal process to authorise that deprivation of liberty. Otherwise, there will be a breach of Article Five of the European Convention on Human Rights. And um, so, really, it's kind of buttressing and building up these procedural safeguards for children, and young people who are deprived of their liberty. Um, but as I as I said, this is. Quite unsettling for a lot of care practices that have been ongoing um, for children and young people, particularly those with disabilities. And I think what we have seen since um, is this kind of rise in the in cases where we are seeking to authorize deprivations of liberty. And it's a very similar tale, actually, to the adult context following Cheshire West where it essentially opened up um, recognition of care practices that are depriving um, adults with disabilities of their liberty and it's a very it's a very similar thing and it's um, yeah the Nuffield Foundation work on this is is really good because they've got unlike the adult context actually they've got essentially an observatory where they are collecting lots of data and you know, recording data on the cases and the decisions in cases in a very systematic way, so we can build a really good picture of care practices and how the laws involved in these. Um, and it's interesting to see how this is different to the the medical context and this requirement, uh, this kind of taking decision making power away from uh, from parents, sorry, and this additional process to authorise deprivations of liberty. It's the distinction is drawn by um, Lady Hale between the medical and treatment decisions and these care decisions. So it's it's, it's quite a a landmark and important decision uh, judgment really in the in the context of disabled children in care.
1: Yeah, it really does challenge um, sort of traditional ideas about what a parent should be responsible or what they are responsible for, um, and the limits of you know. The wishes and realities sort of of children, especially, as you say, those with disabilities. Um, So this sort of relates to the next chapter as well. Um, Thinking about this idea of parental responsibility, Um, this chapter is by Joe Bridgman, and it's called Transforming Family Responsibilities, Children with Disabilities, Parental Responsibilities and Family Life. And Joe Bridgman writes about the Children Act 1989 and the concept of parental responsibility. I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about what the legislation and policy does in this space, and perhaps also the role of the state in supporting parents to fulfil their parental responsibilities.
0: Yeah, so I think a key idea uh, behind parental responsibility is that it's not parental rights, mm-hmm. it's parental responsibilities. So it's encouraging parents not to think uh, that they have sort of control over their children and that they can make um, uh, the decisions as they like, but rather they have responsibilities for children um, and uh, particularly responsibilities to to care. Um, And I think that was why the legislation very carefully used that terminology of parental responsibilities rather than parental rights. Um, But as Jo uh, brilliantly brings out in her chapter, um, there's a particular issue where parents are raising disabled children, because not only do they have to Uh, care and do things in relation to their child, they often have to try and change the world around them. So for example, they may need to to try and advocate in the school for changes for the way that uh, the school organises classrooms so that their child can fit in or change attitudes that teachers or perhaps other children will have towards their child. Um, So they're both Uh, Caring directly for the child, but part of that involves changing uh, the social environment in which they're uh, they're acting. Um, And I think that that really captures well an important aspect of parenting for a child with a disability.
1: And I think perhaps um, the CRPD may add in this space, thinking about the structural barriers that parents will face, um, you know, in having to advocate for their children or getting, you know, making changes to the social environment but i think probably what's um also really significant is care theory and i'm wondering what care theory adds in this space especially with regards to the responsibility for care of disabled children
0: um well i think it 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 certainly shows that care is essential to society in so many different ways um, and that although our societies often focuses on economic productivity and the latest, latest um, rate of inflation or the mortgage rates, actually what really matters to people is care. Um, and we so often lose sight of that uh, in society and it's sort of just left to, to other people's problems or in its, its work that's not valued. Um, and so I think one of the things that care theory would do would say this care work is hugely important not just to the the two people involved the people involved but to the whole of society and we have to find ways as a society to recognise treasure respect and reward that
1: yeah um, I think there's a lot that can be learned and that can be done in this area so just turning to the final part of the book which is part three and it's about adults and family relationships so we talked about a lot about children but um we'll talk about this now so this um the next chapter is called the exam is impossible to pass how disabled parents are at risk of having to prove the impossible in care proceedings and it's by Mark Higgins so how t- can you tell me about this sort of What Mark Higgins described as an impossible test. How are things different for parents with disabilities compared with parents um, without disabilities?
2: Yeah so this is a really interesting and important chapter um, by Mark Higgins. He's a legal professional with a visual impairment and he's drawing on his um, experiences in practice but also bringing that to to bear to kind of critique the case law and the reasoning um, of the judiciary. So I think it's a really fascinating chapter. And I think, again, it's another issue that is... um, becoming more and more recognised and you know I think this this chapter should be the kind of essential starting point for reading reading in this area Um, I was at an event a couple of months ago the Nora Fry Centre have been doing some really interesting research too on this um, and this kind of concept of substituted parenting that seems to be bubbling away um, in a lot of the judgments here Um, and I think it's what this chapter does is to just really kind of reinforce the ways that disabled people are disadvantaged by what seem to be kind of neutral legal frameworks um, and the the kind of the way that disability, um, the, the realities of disability, even though There are steps that are put in place um, by legal professionals and by other professionals. There is is something particular um, and the disadvantage that is created when disability is brought into into the frame here. Um, So some of the things that he talks about in terms of this impossible test, um, one of the challenges is this kind of expectations of perfection um, and this prioritising of no risk outcomes and these kind of no risk standards of perfection. Um, he talks about resources as well and I get again I think this is just a common theme throughout the chapters and I think it's a, a kind of again something that the social model of disability can really bring um brings to light the importance of resources um in these contexts and I think you know for me as well just to on resources I think we need to be really careful with some of the resource arguments here because I think it's very easy to to in in legal reasoning to say that we we can't provide the resources here, or it's too expensive. Um, but one of the points that I'm always quite keen to make is that poor care is very expensive, um, and good care doesn't need to be expensive. Um, so I think there's definitely space to start to bring um, some of these arguments into into this space. Um, but I think one of the really interesting things that that Mark talks about is the the ways that multidisciplinary teams are often assembled in these cases. But what's what's quite tricky in the disability context is that many of these bring very different perspectives and may not be as familiar with care proceedings. Um, So they are often adult social care professionals or they might be organisations particularly focused on a type of disability and they are there to to bring their perspective to bear um, in these multidisciplinary team meetings but they are less familiar with care proceedings so some of the suggestions that they make may ring quite uncomfortably with the, the care proceedings themselves and the outcomes so I think this I think it's a really important insight from a legal professional actually as to how the systems and the processes can actually, even though they are meant to be there to facilitate support for disabled people, the language um, can actually be be to their disadvantage. Um, And I think one of the big things, and this is something that the Nora Fry uh, research on substitute parenting is doing as well, is this criticism of support networks that comes through in the in some of these cases? So if there is too much support required by um the state or support networks, this is seen as substituted parenting. Um and that that's a negative thing. And Mark talks about how um many of us are are very reliant on support networks. I mean, just again, it's one of those when I was reading it and thinking about myself with with two young children, the 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 amount of support I am pulling in from various different people just to kind of keep going, um, that's normalised, I think. Whereas for disabled people, that that's kind of become seen as supported parenting, it, substituted parenting, sorry, and it's a negative, negative idea. Um, so it's a really great chapter for bringing, bringing these issues to light in in the context of what might be seen, at least facially, to be a kind of neutral um legal framework that should apply just as equally to disabled people as others. It's these very subtle ways that uh, disability becomes a disadvantage here.
1: Yeah, and I think actually that can be related to a point Jonathan made earlier, um, you know, this idea that parents, um, parenting is a right almost. Mm -hmm. And so parents who don't have disabilities, they have a right to parent, but parents with disabilities don't have these same rights and Actually, you know, they are disadvantaged by these laws that are, you know, on the surface at least, um, disability neutral, but in fact they don't play out that way because of the sort of structural disadvantage that's perpet- perpetrated.
2: Yeah, and there's a, there's a really interesting mm-hmm. quote actually that... Um... I remember highlighting when I read Mark's chapter, but he, he it was Lord Scott in uh, Reggie who said that there is no Article 8 right to be made a better parent at public expense. And I think that's just really, it really just gets to the heart of these resource issues and these ideas about parenting. Um, but the kind of lack of recognition as well of the, the supports that there are for particular um, groups of parents too, and how that's um, often hidden um, in these legal frameworks
1: so let's turn now to rosie harding's chapter um and it's he got down on one knee intellectual disability intimacy and family law and sort of one of the ideas we haven't really talked about it but it comes through a lot in the disability literature um but you have you know talked about autonomy one of the sort of common themes that comes through in this area is the issue of capacity um and so rosie addresses the way that capacity is designed in terms of sexual relations, marriage, formalising relationships and divorce. So can you tell me a little bit about how capacity assessments operate in these spaces and the impact of these assessments?
0: Yes, I think one of the things that really emerges from Rosie's chapter is that if if a person with a disability uh, starts a relationship with, with someone else, they may have a disability or not. Uh, often the immediate concern is, oh, no, there might be some abuse going along, uh, going on here. We must make sure people are protected. Um, perhaps there's uh, a capacity assessment then carried out. Um, and, and that, as, as she argues, overlooks the uh, all of the positives that those relationships that can bring. Um, It's also, I think, interesting, as she says, that it's the sexual side that suddenly gets focused upon, uh, which might be a small part or indeed no part at all of their relationship. But interestingly, the professionals often zoom in on that one particular aspect uh, of the relationship. the the difficulty in the capacity assessments is that they uh, tend to be uh, applied in the abstract. So, in the sense, we ask, has this person got capacity to consent to a sexual relationship, sort of in general, not with a particular person, but just sort of in the abstract, and that's really proved problematic for the courts um, because. Uh, in fact, it's it's probably true of anybody yeah. <laughs> uh, or nearly anybody that there will be some circumstances in which they'd be capable of consenting to a sex relationships and and others not. It depends whether there are threatening circumstances or wh- how intoxicated you are or mm-hmm. or all sorts of other things. Um, so it's a very strange question just to ask, sort of mm. in the abstract. And the courts have certainly got into great difficulties about what you need to understand to have the capacity to consent to sex. Do you just need to understand the physical nature of the act, or do you need to understand the moral issues? And, of course, the courts are very nervous about talking about those moral issues because there's so many different views about what might be morally relevant in relation to a sexual behaviour Um, But if you're just focusing on the physical nature, that's very problematic, too, because does a person not need to understand they have the right to say no uh, or do they need to understand that their partner has the right to say no? Uh, and this really has, as Rosie brings out in her chapters, led, led the courts uh, into a really tricky area. It's not entirely the court's fault, <laughs> um, but it, it certainly seems we, we haven't got this question uh, question right. And that, that really comes through, I think, in Rosie's chapter.
1: And this feeds in really nicely to the next chapter by Jamie Lindsay. And it is about um, protecting disabled adults from abusive relationships. So Lindsay is concerned with the protection of disabled adults from abusive family relationships. So then I'm interested to know how mental capacity, autonomy and vulnerability play into all of this. Yeah, so (laughs) Jamie's chapter and
2: she's really trying to, to draw out this misplaced focus on autonomy. Um, in these cases of abuse against mentally disabled adults. Um, and then she looks at the way that the legal framework around mental capacity works here. And the focus really through this is on autonomy. And um, so if someone is seen as capacitous, then they're seen as autonomous, um, and they kind of fit that um, legal subject ideal of a- autonomy. Um, so in these cases, she, she kind of talks about this interplay between the Mental Capacity Act, which is very much focused on autonomy, and the inherent jurisdiction, which is focused on vulnerable adults. And um, so these are those who might fall outside of the Mental Capacity Act. um, But the, the court have kind of carved out this this scope for intervening in their decision making on the basis of vulnerability instead. Um, And she talks about how this kind of overlapping framework um is... Um, yeah, it's it's not working because of this this kind of misplaced focus on autonomy um, and the, the, the way that this can often exacerbate the kind of vulnerability that has been experienced through this abuse. Um, and really, I think what's quite powerful is she talks about some of the, she looks at this through the three different cases um, and all of which involve some form of um, kind of potential domestic abuse or abusive family relationship Um, and what often comes through through these legal frameworks is this idea of taking the person out of that coercive environment um, will then allow them to be autonomous Um, and actually what ends up happening is people who are quite happy in their domestic setting get moved somewhere else um, in the interest of facilitating their autonomy. Um, and, you know, Lindsay, I think, rightly sees this as problematic. Um, she's really what is happening here is the individual is the problem. They're the kind of site of change. Um, and it's their, it's their life and their decision making that is the site of surveillance and control. Um, whereas the perpetrator of the abuse tends not um, to have much happen to them, they don't have to move, for example. So it's it's disability, it's mental capacity, it's vulnerability that is this the kind of inroad to allowing that intervention in someone's life. And there's a really interesting interplay with disability and vulnerability here, and um, because the scope of the vulnerable adult in through the inherent jurisdiction, tends to require disability. Um, and Jamie talks in this chapter about how this wouldn't, these powers wouldn't be there if the person didn't have disability um, or a disability. And I mean, just thinking back to uh, Rose's chapter and what Jonathan was talking about there with the consent to sex case law, it. It it really struck me reading this chapter again recently how um in one of the cases the perpetrator of abuse talked about how um he had a right to have sex with his partner um and this is so striking now in the context of more recent court protection cases um where somebody because they um fall under the mental capacity act and they have autism um they are essentially that the court um allow this kind of very stark intervention in their life to prevent them from having sexual relationships, yet in this um, in this other case that Jamie talks about, because he, as a perpetrator, didn't fall within the mental capacity of the inherent jurisdiction, because he didn't have a disability, um, the court don't focus on challenging his problematic ideas about sexual relationships. It's the victim who has to essentially move house um, and move away from him. And I think there's some really interesting strands that could be drawn out between those two chapters, actually.
1: Yeah, so disability then becomes the sort of um, litmus test for intervention and control, um, regardless of the person's wishes and feelings, perhaps. Um, So the final chapter is on law and dementia. And Margaret Isabel Hall writes that the majority of people living with dementia are old, but that it doesn't exist in a bubble. Rather, dementia intersects with a person's familiar relations, gender roles and expectations, and also in the social context shrouded in stigma. So can you situate dementia in a family and disability context?
0: Yeah, I think it's it's interesting how dementia has been primarily discussed in in a medical context and and by philosophers. Uh, And a very prominent theme in the philosophical writing is that uh, someone with dementia may well become a different person, uh, that because they have lost all their memories, they might have got different kinds of values or different ways of behaving. Uh, They've sort of now separated from their previous self. They're a new person um but i think as margaret brings out that that seems a very strange way to someone whose um parent for example has got dementia um I suppose it happens very occasionally but it would be very very rare for someone to say oh they're no longer my mother or my father because they've got dementia they're now a different mm-hmm. person Um, that the relational context uh, still, if anything, can be enhanced. Um, So I think her chapter really brings out that rather individualised understanding of dementia you often find in the philosophical writing, Um, but also shows, I think, then the challenges of the changes in the social role that perhaps a parent or grandparent is often seen as the holder of the memories for the family. Or a particularly wise voice of experience, um, but dementia may challenge then that that role um, and, and bring with it uh, 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 stigma based again on these assumptions that we all should be highly competent and independent. Um, so I think it's a it's a fascinating analysis uh, of seeking to uh, making sure we understand. Um, personal identity um, uh, in a relational and social context and the impact of dementia within that same context.
1: Yeah, and actually this idea of relational and social context and the significance of that is a common theme that comes throughout, I think, all of the chapters just about. Um, it's a really important, I think, takeaway from the book. Um, and it is such a rich book and it does really give, you know, pause for thought to really question, um, use disability scholarship scholarship rather, um, care theory, relational theory, vulnerability theory to sort of challenge these normative assumptions in family law, in policy, um, and the sort of attitudes that are shaped um, by that. So now, just before you go, both of you, just to wrap up, I'd just like to ask you, what are you working on now?
2: Um, So I'm doing some work on um, law and the concept of home Um, and I think there's some really interesting interplays actually with um, ideas of the domestic and and the family as part of this. But yeah, what I'm trying to do is to bring this kind of legal geographical approach and bring critical disability studies into conversation with it to think about how disability um, can kind of unsettle certain normative ideas about the home.
0: And uh, m- uh, my project's a slightly different area. I'm working on a book on male violence against women uh, and with Hannah Bowers, a book on femicide. Um, and uh, Bev and I, in preparing this interview, we're, we're, we're talking about perhaps working together on a new article uh, on these cases of uh, intimate relationships involving people with disabilities. And So it'd be fun if that comes to fruition. Yeah, I can't wait to read it. So hopefully it, it will. Um...
1: It'd be great to read some of the work that you do together in the future and hopefully we can have you both back um, to talk about your new books at some stage in the not too distant future
0: that'd be wonderful
1: excellent so just to wrap everything up i'm jane richards this is new books in law a channel on the new books network i've been speaking with professor beverly clough and professor jonathan herring about their book disability care and family law bev and jonathan thank you so much for your time Thank Thank you.